0: We're going to pray and jump into our overview of Zechariah this morning. Lord, thank you for uh, just the chance we get every week to gather together as your people to open your word. Uh, it is truly a privilege to come into your presence with thanksgiving, into your courts with praise. It's a privilege to be fed and nourished by your word. I pray that you would uh, give us a heart that is eager, uh, both in, in our Sunday school hour as well as during our time of corporate worship this morning. Give us a heart that's teachable pray that you'd give us a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. There's so many things in the world that that capture our attention and demand our energy. But Lord, your word is precious. It's more precious than gold or silver. So I pray that we would eagerly long to be fed with the sincere milk of the word this morning. So I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you are uh, visiting this morning, we've been doing a, a Sunday school series, basically going through the entire Bible, just a very small little project we've been working on. Um, going book by book each week. So each week we attempt to give a simple overview of a book of the Bible and to explain its background, its context, to explain the major themes and the structure of that book. And the aim of that, um, in addition to giving different men in our church a chance to teach and to use and develop their gifts, the secondary aim of that is we want you to get better at reading your Bible. We want you to be better equipped so that when you read through Scripture— um, you don't feel how sometimes I feel in a department store, which is wandering around saying, why am I here and why, why does this stuff in front of me matter, right? So sometimes we feel like that, especially in some of the books that, that maybe we're less familiar with. And um, Pastor Stephen was going to teach this morning, but he is homesick today. So I get the privilege of giving us a walk through the Old Testament book of Zechariah. So you can turn to Zechariah if you're not there already. And we'll be going through uh, this book, the second to last book in the Old Testament, one of the minor prophets. Zechariah is what I like to call the major minor prophet. Uh, He technically is one of the 12, one of these uh, smaller um, prophetic books in the Old Testament. But this minor prophetic book actually has 14 chapters. So it's one of the longer minor prophets so, in that sense, it sort of feels like a major prophet. It feels more like Isaiah or Ezekiel or Jeremiah, one of those, one of the big ones. and like the minor prophets, even some of its content feels more or like the major prophets, it, it feels more like one of those major prophets because he has the, the time and the space with fourteen chapters to deal with um, oracles of judgment, with calls for repentance. There is uh, many promises and, and prophecies in the book of Zechariah, and there's actually a lot of eschatology. There's much in Zechariah that deals with not just the first coming of Christ, but the second coming of Christ. So it has a lot in common thematically with the major prophets. Zechariah is one of those books that's notoriously difficult to interpret. Um, we, we probably struggle to interpret uh, many of the minor prophets just because it's a unique Uh, genre and it's historically far removed from where we are and we have to sort of get our our mind into gear with what was going on back then. But Zechariah is especially difficult because of all the symbolism that's there. It's called often an apocalyptic type book. So in that sense, it has a lot in common with the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament or the New Testament book of Revelation. All of these symbols, all of these these visions that can be hard for us to work through and interpret. So Zechariah can be a little bit tricky to read and interpret. But I think that Zechariah is one of the most exciting minor prophets because of its length and because of all of the eschatological prophecies, there is so much about the Messiah. There's so much about Jesus in the book of Zechariah. And it'd be a great Bible study just to read through Zechariah and take your pencil or your highlighter, whatever you like to do, and just circle or mark in the margin. Maybe you put a little symbol in the margin every time you see a reference to Christ because Christ is all over the book of Zechariah, which I think makes it very exciting. Uh, The book of Zechariah is also one of the most frequently quoted Old Testament books in the New Testament. Uh, As you read and study the New Testament, what you find is that the New Testament authors believed in and used and loved The scriptures that they had, which was the Old Testament, they were often quoting and alluding to uh, Old Testament passages of scripture. And the book of Zechariah is referenced no less than 71 times in the New Testament. That's heavy usage. Uh, One-third of those references are in the Gospels. So as you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you will see uh, so many of those references to the book of Zechariah. So if you don't understand Zechariah, it will be hard to understand the teaching of Jesus and the New Testament gospel authors as they are trying to connect the dots for us and show us how Christ is the fulfillment of what we find in the Book of Zechariah. Um, there's 31 references to Zechariah in the Book of Revelation. Uh, which, by the way, there's been several people say, "Hey, when are you going to preach the whole Book of Revelation on Sunday morning?" It's so exciting, and I tell them I want to, and I'm excited about it. But first. I felt like we needed to do Genesis. You have to understand the beginning before you understand the end. We've done that. But I also want to preach Ezekiel and Zechariah because that's the foundation. That's the foundational material for the book of Revelation. And I think we chase our tails in the book of Revelation with no idea what things mean because we're not very familiar with the source material for the book of Revelation, with the images and the language that that John uses writing Revelation because he's drawing from Ezekiel, drawing from Zechariah and other places in the Old Testament. Um, But because of all of that, I really do believe Zechariah is an understudied, undervalued book in the Old Testament. Uh, The book of Zechariah was written after the return from exile. This would have been around 520 BC. So if you remember the children of Israel, because of their ongoing sin, they had been uh, overthrown um, by... uh, First Assyria came and took the northern tribes, and then Babylon came and conquered the southern kingdom of Judah, and, and they went into captivity for 70 years. Uh, That's when we get the stories of Daniel and his three friends and and some of the other uh, stories we find, Esther, um, from that period of exile, and and eventually God brought them all home. The Babylonian Empire fell, and um, new empires came in after them, and Cyrus gave them permission to go back, to go home. And so this is a post-exilic prophet. So he's writing after the exile, which is very, very important. And because of that, we know that he overlaps with the prophet Haggai. They're writing around the same time to the same people in the same situation. Um, we see this in Zechariah chapter 1, verse 1. Um, he gives us a very clear date in the eighth month, in the second year of Darius. So there's a time stamp. There's a ruler of the Medes and the Persians in the Medo-Persian Empire. The word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo. So it gives us a very uh, concrete uh, setting and time. Zechariah's name means God remembers. And there's no accidents. And the name of the author flavors the rest of the book. God remembers. And that plays into the theme as we'll see later. He's the son of Iddo who is a priest. And he's a priest who returned with Zerubbabel. If you go back to Nehemiah chapter 12, you find a listing of the different people that came back. They came back to resettle Jerusalem and, and the surrounding cities. They came back to build the wall around Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And Iddo was the head of a priestly family, uh, one of those families that came back out of the exile. And Zechariah was one of his sons, which means Zechariah was a priest. He was a priest who was called to a prophetic role. So Zechariah is sort of double-dipping. We have priests and we have prophets, but every once in a while we get a priest who is a prophet. Jeremiah and Ezekiel were also Uh, priestly men who served a prophetic role. So that uh, perhaps indicates why Zechariah shows a special interest in the temple. Not only is that a project that's going on, the temple's being rebuilt, uh, but also as a priest, that's something that Zechariah would have been very familiar with and cared deeply about. Uh, We also have a vision that Zechariah has of Joshua, the high priest. And so as a priest who's witnessing this incredible vision of the high priest um, it, we sort of see some of the connections there. Um, his ministry spanned uh, probably about 50 years, and we've learned in the New Testament that Zechariah, the author of this book, was the last of the Old Testament martyrs. In Matthew 23, 34, uh, we find that he was killed. Ironically, uh, very similarly to an earlier man named Zechariah. If you go to 2 Chronicles 24, there was another Zechariah. It was a common name. Another Zechariah that was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. And the same thing happened to this Zechariah. Um, a lot of irony there. Jesus says in Matthew 23, 34, "...therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth." From the blood of righteous Abel, that's all the way back in Genesis uh, chapter 4, to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. So eventually, this faithful priest, this faithful prophet, was put to death by a faction, uh, a group of people who did not like his message, did not want to be told that they needed to repent. And so he was the last of the Old Testament martyrs. Let's talk about the occasion. Why was he writing this book? What was the situation that prompted the need for 14 chapters of Zachariah's prophecy? Well, there's a historical occasion. This book was written as the city and the temple are being rebuilt, which means um, it's a people who need to be encouraged. Uh, the, the spiritual side of that is that these people are facing opposition. These people are called to a difficult task. It's not easy to build a wall and build a temple and to do it at your own expense, um, and so this book is written to encourage them. Uh, this temple isn't like Solomon's temple. And some of the old men who remembered the first temple, they were discouraged. They even wept when they saw the the footings for the foundation. They said, "Man, this isn't going to be anything like the first temple." So they needed to be encouraged. Um, there was lots of opposition that abounded. It was costly for them. So their question was, "Is it worth pressing forward?" This whole building project and resettling the land and getting uh, the temple rebuilt, is that worth doing? Is God really going to keep his promises or are we just going to be this small beleaguered people who get kicked around by everybody else for the rest of time? So Zechariah, the Lord remembers. The Lord remembers his promise. The Lord has not abandoned his purpose for you. The Lord sees you and loves you and is committed to you so keep going. It is worth it. That's sort of the the purpose of Zechariah. Recognize what God is planning to do. Zechariah gives them, well, God gives them through Zechariah this vision of the future, and he says, listen, recognize what I'm going to do, and as a response to that, in light of what I am going to do for you, I want you to resolve to worship, obey, and to look expectantly to the fulfillment of my promise. Zechariah Is meant to strengthen their faith so that they are uh, able to keep going forward with the task God has given them. Let's talk about some of the different themes in the book of Zechariah. These are things that as you read through the Bible on your own, things that should jump out, things you should pay attention to. One of the primary themes in the book of Zechariah is the name Yahweh. It's the Lord. Uh, This is God's covenant name, and we find it 133 times in the book of Zechariah. It's a constant Emphasis, this covenant name of God. When God uses the name, uh, this, this name Yahweh, the, the name that means I am who I am, it hearkens them back to that time when God formalized his covenant with them. This is the God who made promises to Abraham, the God who made promises uh, and, and, and entered into this covenant at Mount Sinai uh, with Moses. This is the God of the covenant. And every time we see this name, the Lord, it reminds us of his promise, his love, his faithfulness and his relationship to his people. This is the Lord who enters into relationship with his people. Um, there's also a theme of remembrance. Zachariah's name means God remembers. God has not forgotten his plans and his promises. And in turn, God calls them to remember him. He wants them to remember what he has called them to. He wants them to remember the judgment that fell upon their sin which led them into captivity in Babylon so they don't repeat the same mistakes. And he wants them to remember their duties and obligations towards him, what he's called them to do. In Zechariah chapter 10, verse nine, we see this theme of remembrance. God says, though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me. And with their children, they shall live and return. God remembers them and his plan is actually to restore his people so that they remember him so that they will love him and worship him. Repentance and restoration is a key theme as well. In fact, Zechariah starts off, the first six verses are a call to repent. Turning to God is central for Israel. It's so important for them. If they're going to experience the spiritual and the the physical restoration that they need, that will not happen apart from repentance. Apart from repentance. In fact, this call to repentance Um, is not just a a matter of right here and now for the people of Israel. Yes, there's a a measure of repentance that Zechariah calls that generation to. But in the book of Zechariah, we also see this prophetic foretelling of a future day, a future day of national repentance and a national restoration, a day when all Israel, as Romans 11 says, all Israel would one day be saved. And we see that in chapter 12, and we'll we'll get to that later. This future national repentance that leads to restoration for the nation Israel. Another key theme would be the theme of the Messiah. The theme of the Messiah. We see his pre-incarnate work as the angel of the Lord. When you see the angel of the Lord in Zechariah, that's Jesus. That is God the Son. That is the pre-incarnate Christ before he was born as a baby in Bethlehem. Uh, we, see, um, we see him operating as the captain of the Lord's armies. Uh, we see this title, the Lord of hosts. And we see, that's a, a reference to God as being um, the, the, the master of all of these armies. And the angel of the Lord is the one who superintends, who directs, who manages those armies. We see Christ's pre-incarnate ministry there. We also see him ministering as an intercessor. In chapter 1, verse 12, we see the angel of the Lord appealing to God the Father on behalf of Israel. We see Christ praying for his people. We see uh, many details about Christ's first coming. In chapter 9, verse 9, we see this prophecy about the Lord coming humble and seated on a donkey. This prophecy that's fulfilled at, uh, at that moment when Jesus enters into Jerusalem, uh, Palm Sunday, uh, the triumphal entry, as we often call it. We see uh, Jesus, we see this, this reference to Zechariah being, being um, valued at 30 pieces of silver. And then those 30 pieces of silver being thrown to the potter, foretelling that Jesus would be sold for 30 pieces of silver and that the money that Judas got for betraying Christ would be thrown into the temple, just like Zechariah threw that money into the temple. <clears throat> and that the religious leaders would use that money to buy a potter's field. So there's all of this correspondence between What's happening here in Zechariah, and things that point us towards the first coming of Christ. In chapter 12, verse 10, we see a reference to the one who was pierced, that they will look on him whom they have pierced, pointing forward to Christ. Chapter 13, verse 7, we find reference to a shepherd that is struck, and the sheep are being scattered. Jesus uses that passage and, and applies it to what he is going to experience, that as he is crucified, his, his disciples flee, and they're scattered. So there's lots of references to the, not only the pre-incarnate Christ, but the incarnate Christ, the first coming of Jesus. And then there's also much about the second coming of Christ. We see reference to his arrival on the Mount of Olives. We see that he will gather God's people, cleanse their sin, strike their enemies, that he will reign supreme and receive worship. There is much about the second coming of Christ, the day of the Lord, in the book of Zechariah. Then we also see an additional theme of the temple. Again, this was a historically relevant uh, matter for the audience that Zechariah wrote for. They are rebuilding the temple, so that matters. But there's also a lot about the future temple, a future dwelling place for the glory of God on Mount Zion, a place from which... Uh, the Messiah will reign and rule a place, this temple, to which all of the, the, the Gentiles and the surrounding nations will come to offer tribute and worship. So the, the theme of the temple, both their temple and the future temple, is, is prominent in the book of Zechariah. So their perseverance in building their temple displayed faith in God's future temple. It, it showed that they cared about God's intentions, God purpose, God's purposes to have a place for his glory to dwell among his people. And then there's a final theme uh, that is a significant theme, and that would be the future kingdom. And here at our church, we, we teach that this kingdom is future, that it is physical. It's this thousand-year kingdom that's referred to in Revelation, and we see a lot of details about this kingdom. We don't have time to look at all of these, but I'm just going to fly through, and this helps you see why we've, we have this view of a kingdom that is future and physical, We see this kingdom in chapter 1 is earthly and climactic. It's not just a heavenly kingdom. It's here. We see in this kingdom that Jerusalem and the temple are rebuilt and God's glory is in their midst. We see that Jerusalem will come to be known as the city of truth. We can't say that right now uh, because they're rejecting Christ. They're rejecting the Messiah. It's not a city of truth. But one day it will be. We find in this millennial kingdom that the nation Israel is finally in a right relationship with God. He can call them my people, and they can say to him that that you are my God. We see that in chapter 13, this restoration of the nation. We see that the nations, the other nations, come to worship Yahweh there at Jerusalem in the temple. We see that there is worldwide peace in chapter 14. We see that there is a new kind of light. It's not from the sun or the moon. It's something different altogether because Christ and his glory is there. There's new topography as the whole uh, region becomes a plain. All the mountains are flattened out. We see that there's an Edenic kind of rest and a peace in chapter 3. And that even the common things become holy. It says that the bells on the horse's neck are even labeled holy to the Lord. That the common household pots, the pots and pans they use for daily use, are inscripted holy to the Lord. And in the Old Testament, this phrase, holy to the Lord, was what was inscribed on a medallion that was placed on the high priest's turban. So everything, even the horse equipment and the pots and pans, are going to be considered just as holy as the high priest in the Old Testament. That's a phenomenal description of what's going to happen when Christ returns, when he establishes his kingdom, and and he reigns supreme. We see that there will be one king over all the earth who is worshipped by all. That is what's going to happen when Christ returns and he establishes his kingdom. So I hope you're getting excited to read the book of Zechariah because it is very exciting. I want to give you a bit of an outline and overview. Uh, In chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, we find this call to return to the Lord. So, like a good prophet does, he opens up right out of the gate with a call to repentance. That's what the prophets so often preached. The next section, um, chapter 1, verse 7 through chapter 6, verse 8, we find these eight night visions. And this all happens on one night. It was quite the night for Zechariah. God gives him eight different visions, um, and we'll cover those briefly here in a moment. Following those visions, we see um, this instruction to put a crown on the head of Joshua. Joshua was the high priest. Zerubbabel was sort of the the governmental leader, and and Joshua was the religious leader, the high priest, and he is crowned in chapter 6. Then there's a, a section where we have questions about fasts. Should they keep observing these fasts that they had been observing? Um, And there's some back and forth discussion regarding those fasts. And then in chapter 9 through 14, the last portion of the book, we have this whole section that's dedicated to the coming of the Messiah, the coming of his kingdom. It is is a promise, a, a prophecy of what is going to happen in the future. So this is sort of the outline and overview of the whole book. Um, So if you're like me, it's helpful to have a little bit of a sense of where you're at in relation to the rest. And so this is a bit of a map for you as you read through the book of Zechariah. And if you find this helpful, um, a great resource we recommend to people is a good study Bible. If you don't have a good study Bible, that's something that I think is a valuable investment for every Christian to have in their personal library. It's kind of like a, a, a... Theological library all in one. There's a few different study Bibles we recommend. Uh, The ESV study Bible is great. The MacArthur study Bible is great. It's excellent. We have a few others in our library as well. If you want to look at some of those and check them out, you can test drive them and then go buy one for yourself because all of those study Bibles will have an introductory section for the book of the Bible that will have outlines and themes and dates and all the stuff that we're sharing today. And so we think that's helpful. Um, So let's just sort of walk through, in the time that remains, I just want to cover a little bit about the content. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 1 through 6, we have this call to repentance, a call to return to the Lord. Um, And we don't have time to read everything, but verse 3, Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, And I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. He says, listen, I hope you guys have learned your lesson from the past. The previous generation did not repent. They went into exile. I hope that you won't make the same mistake. God judges sin and the past judgments are a warning to the current generation. And there's a promise here that obedience brings blessing. He says, return to me and I will return to you. There's no glory in the temple right now. The walls are all broken down. Your nation is just this little, unimpressive, floundering little bunch of stragglers. It's nothing like the former glory of what the kingdom of Israel used to be. But if you return to me, I will return to you. And all that can change. Obedience brings blessing. And the word of God is inescapable. He says, listen, don't, don't doubt me. Don't test me. You know what happened before. I hope you will learn from that. And this shows us that God is not just interested in a holy place. He wants more than just a temple to be built. He wants a holy people. He wants a people whose hearts are rightly oriented towards him. Following this call to repentance, we have these eight night visions, chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. And each one of these follows a pattern. The pattern is that, first of all, Zechariah describes what he sees. So we, we see this, and you can go through and sort of scan your eyes along the page and see, like, for instance, chapter 2, verse 1, I lifted up my eyes and saw, right, Chapter 3, verse 1. Then he showed me. And then chapter 4, verse 1. The angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who's wakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? So there's this pattern that Zechariah sees something. He describes what he sees. And then in all of these eight visions, except for the fourth one, he asks for the meaning. So you can sympathize with Zechariah. He's seeing these amazing, incredible things, and he's going, What does this mean? What does this mean? And while we don't get all the answers we want, the interpretation is given. <clears throat> the angel or whoever it is that he's speaking with explains to him what exactly it is that he's seeing. So there's somewhat of a pattern here, and we see this eight different times. There's eight different night visions. The first is vision of these horsemen who patrol the earth. They represent God's sovereign involvement, God's sovereign evaluation of the nations, that God although it may feel to the people of Israel <clears throat> like God doesn't see what's going on, that he's not in control because all these different empires seem to be uh, vying for power and Israel is getting kicked back and forth like a hacky sack between them. This vision shows them that God is still sovereign over the nations, that the captain of the Lord's armies, the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ is, is overseeing and deploying these divine messengers And they're going throughout all the earth. And we even see uh, in this vision that Christ intercedes for Judah and Jerusalem. I love this. In chapter 1, verse 12, the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. That's such a beautiful scene that you have Jesus, the pre-incarnate Christ, saying, Father, it's been 70 years of judgment on them. Show mercy. That's enough judgment for now. And the Lord answers gracious and comforting words. And the gracious and comforting words that are given to Christ and then given to Zechariah are then recorded here in this book. These words are meant to be gracious and comforting words for the people of Israel. The second night vision is a vision of four horns, and if you've read the book of Daniel, then we're familiar with this horn imagery. We're even familiar with what they represent, these various empires that rise and fall, the Babylonians, the Medes and the Persians, the Greek Empire and the Roman Empire to follow. These four horns that, that, that oppress and shatter God's people. But then there's also these four craftsmen, God's appointed servants who come to terrify and to cast down Israel's oppressors. There's a third vision, a man with a measuring line in Jerusalem. And a measuring line was used to measure property that one was either buying or selling. If you've ever bought a house or sold a house uh, you know that people care about the square footage. They want to know the dimensions. And when you buy a new place, you go in and you say, all right, where are we going to put the couch? Is the, di- is the dining room table going to fit here? Maybe you go out and measure your property and say, you know what? We can, put, we can put 20 head of cattle out on this pasture and over in this portion. I think we have room for a garden. And you're measuring and making plans for what you're going to do with your place. And so this is an encouraging vision that this man measuring Jerusalem shows Israel that God isn't done with them, that he has big plans for them. And just because it seems like there's not much going on at the moment, there are small people struggling to rebuild their temple, God has big plans for their future. We see a fourth vision of the high priest before God. And I want you to turn here, chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. This is maybe my favorite section in the book of Zechariah, but I might say that again later, I'm not sure. Because it's all favorite when you dive into it, right? It says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Zachariah sees a vision of this heavenly courtroom. It's a courtroom scene. And you have the high priest, the representative of Israel. The high priest represented God to the people as, as he made sacrifices and, and provided atonement. But he also represented the people to God. He's the one who stood before the Lord to represent the people of Israel. And and as Joshua, the high priest, stands before the Lord, we have Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. This people has failed you, Yahweh. They have broken your law. They have worshipped idols. They're not rebuilding the wall or the temple as they're supposed to. And there's no end to the accusations. And then look at verse two. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? This is a forceful response from God to say you will not accuse and condemn the ones I have chosen. He doesn't say they haven't sinned. He doesn't say your accusations don't stick. He says, I chose Jerusalem. That's why I will not allow your accusation to be the last word. And he says, is is not this a brand plucked from the fire? He says, yes, I know that I have judged them and I've burned the whole thing down, but I'm not done with them. I've plucked them out of the fire and I have a purpose for the future for these people. I love verse three. Joshua was standing before the angel and he's clothed with filthy garments. There's a reason for the accusations. The accusations are, are valid, Because there is sin. The people of Israel have sinned. Even Joshua, as a high priest, is a sinner. And the angel said to those who are standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua. I love that word assured. There's assurance in God's sovereign choice. There's assurance in God's cleansing and atoning work. There's assurance that comes when God declares us vindicated and forgiven and not guilty. He says, assure Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 7, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. Here's a reference to Christ, the branch, the descendant of David. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. This reference to the branch and the stone is a reference to Christ. And there's a promise here that I will remove their iniquity in a single day. The day that Jesus died on the cross, atonement was provided, not just for Israel, but for all who place their faith in Christ. And on a single day to come in the future, when all Israel repents their iniquity, their history of idolatry and rejecting Christ, all of that iniquity will be taken away in a single day. This is an amazing redemptive passage that speaks to God's plan of salvation. So exciting. And we see this in the vision of the high priest standing before God. There's a fifth vision of a lampstand with two olive trees. The lampstand was often representative of of Israel. They were to be a light to the nations, but it was also representative of God's spirit. And for a people that were languishing and struggling, and, and are we going to be a light to the nations? Are we going to be able to fulfill God's purpose for us? We see these two trees that are both olive trees, and they provide a constant flow of oil so that there's an infinite supply for the lamp so that it never runs out. And we find that famous passage where God says, not by power, not by might, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord. It's the power of God that will provide not only what these people need to finish their project, but it's the <clears throat> power and the provision of God who will send his son into the world who will be the light of the world. Jesus will be the ultimate lamp, the light shining in a dark place. And so we see God's promise of provision there with the lamp stand and the two trees. So encouraging for these people. We also see a vision of a flying scroll. Uh, this massive scroll, it was much bigger than the normal scroll, and it's flying through the air. And this scroll goes into different houses, and it's a it's a picture of judgment. It goes into each house and it sort of smokes out all the sinners. And it exposes sin and it judges sin. We see here a warning that, yes, though God forgives and though he provides everything we need, though he has plans for Jerusalem, don't start thinking that he's gone soft on sin. The word of the Lord proves true. It is inevitable and inescapable. We see a seventh vision of this woman who's in a large basket, a basket that would have been used for gathering grain. And there's a lid on it, and he lifts up the lid and looks inside, and you see this woman. And this woman personifies wickedness. She personifies the wicked systems, the corruption, the idolatry that had been so prevalent in Israel. And this woman is taken and removed. She's taken away, taken out of Israel to symbolize that God is going to purify his people. But the basket is taken to Shinar, which is another word for Babylon, and established there. So wickedness is removed from Israel, but it's going to be established in the world. We see the world's system growing. We even see references later in this book to an antichrist type figure. There is an establishment of wickedness and power and idolatry in the world. And so while God is redeeming and purifying his people, there's also this other thing going on. And so Zechariah has given insight into that. But then we see the final vision, and it's a vision of four chariots. Just as the horses in the first vision went out to be- patrol the earth, and they bring a report back in, the chariots represent God's response. After gathering all the intel, he says, okay, here's what's going to happen. And he sends out these chariots from between these two brass mountains. And it's representative of God's justice, God's judgment, and his holy response to rule and to judge <clears throat> over his world. And the result of these chariots going out is victory and rest. God wins. God wins. That's the point of the fourth night, or the eighth uh, night vision. So I know we have flown through this and we're about out of time. We only have a little bit left to go. There's a, a scene where we see Joshua crowned Which is unusual. Joshua's a priest, but we see here a a uniting of the offices of uh, king and priest. And it's symbolic of Zerubbabel and Joshua working together in that day, but ultimately it points us forward to Christ who fulfills both offices. Jesus is the king and the priest. There's also a question about fasts. They've been um, observing these fasts. Uh, Again, I wanted to read some of these verses, but we're running out of time, so I'm going to go fast. They asked questions because after their exile, the temple was destroyed, Jerusalem had been sieged, they were taken away. They had fasts in different months to commemorate those times of judgment. And God's answer very simply was, look, it's not fasting that's required, it's repentance. Um, And and the fasting that they'd been doing wasn't genuine, it wasn't sincere. In fact, we see in verses 11 through 12 of chapter 7, their hearts had become diamond hard. And God is saying, did I tell you to observe those fasts? No, you decided to do that. What I really want you to do is repent. And besides, those who repent, those who have the right heart towards God, can actually look forward to a feast. We see this in chapter uh, 8. And I love God's answers to their questions. Verse 18, the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness, and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. God says, this is actually what I desire for you. As you love truth and peace, as you turn from sin and your heart is right towards me, the goal is feasting, not fasting. It's a great answer to their question. The final section has to do with the coming Messiah and his kingdom. It's really divided into these two oracles, these two burdens um, <clears throat> that's how this portion is divided. And the first oracle, the first burden, has to do with the, with the Messiah's rejection. Chapters 9, verse 1 through eleven seventeen, we see many things that have to do with Christ's first coming, his first advent. Uh, we see that he is seated on a donkey but they rejected him. We see reference to these bad shepherds. Israel followed these scribes and these Pharisees who misled them. We see Zechariah called in chapter 11 to sort of a living parable of bad shepherding, where he misuses the sheep and he breaks his staff, and then he asks everybody, what do you think of that? He's like a living parable of bad shepherding, because Israel as a whole rejected the good shepherd, and they followed bad shepherds. And we see even a reference to a coming Antichrist-type figure in chapter 11, verses 16 and 17. They reject the good shepherd, which opens the way up for a worthless shepherd. A worthless shepherd who devours the sheep, and God pronounces judgment on him at the end of chapter 11. So the first oracle has to do with the Messiah's rejection. The second oracle, the second burden of the Lord that was laid upon Zechariah, had to do with the Messiah's acceptance. This is his second advent, his second coming. We see that the returning Messiah will defend and empower Israel to defeat her enemies, chapter 12, 1 through 9. We find that that he leads Israel into national repentance. Um, I do want to read this because this is incredibly significant, um, that God has not given up on these people, even though they've rejected the Messiah. There's a day coming when God, because of his sovereign choice of election, is going to redeem them and call them to himself. Look in chapter 12, verse 10. He says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. It's very obvious who that refers to. I will pour out on them a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. And weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the houses of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, and the family of the Shimeites by itself, and their wives by themselves, and the families that are left, each by itself, and their wives by themselves. This mourning is grief. It is broken as saying, We killed the Messiah. We pierced the Son of God, and now he's returned, and we see him, and we recognize he's the only one who can save us, and all of these families of Jerusalem will repent. And it says in chapter 13, verse 1, On that day, the day of this great repentance, when they look on him whom they have pierced, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. This is what Paul refers to in Romans 11 when he says that one day all Israel will be saved. God's purposes of election have not been abandoned. So in conclusion, what's the the takeaway for us from the book of Zechariah? Well, the Lord remembers. He remembers his promise, he remembers his people, and he remembers his purpose to exalt his son. He not only sent his son to die for sin, to be rejected, but he raised him from the dead. He exalted him to his right hand, where right now he's praying for us, just like he prayed for Israel. Right now he intercedes for us, just like he interceded for Joshua, the high priest. And when Christ returns, he will be the glorious king, the only God, and all will see him and worship him. Lord, we thank you so much for the encouragement we find from this book. I pray that as we take up and read, that you would continue to strengthen our faith through the truth of your word. Amen. All right, you're dismissed. We'll see you back here in 15 minutes for worship.